ASP.NET. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you uh, this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us as we are back here in the studio. Been gone for a few weeks, but hope you can join us today if you are new to uh, the Bible line broadcast for the next hour we will take questions that people have emailed us or if they'd like to call in live you're welcome to do that again the number locally is 843-525-1859 or you can email us directly at tbl it stands for the bible line tbl at wagp.net if you call, you're welcome to dictate your question or go on the air live. And so if you have a question as you've been studying God's word or maybe a challenge in your personal life or family life or ministry life, and you want biblical counsel, if we can help by God's grace, we'll do the best that we can. So Rick, let's go ahead and we'll jump right in with both feet. With God's help, we'll get started here. Absolutely. Pastor Lisa from Rinkin writes, we're looking for a book that you'd recommend for a family that's been deeply hurt by their children church. We officially had a messy exit in December over a matter that grew worse and more hurtful over a period of nine months. We kept reaching out to the youth leadership, then a senior elder who had no advice, then the new young inexperienced pastor who made matters worse, and finally, uh, getting more and more hurt and exasperated, we had to leave in December. It became so messy that when all was said and done, the elders, only two left in this dying church since we arrived, and the new pastor said, too messy to deal with, and lies. Name-calling and misjudgment were flying everywhere. My daughter was called a gossip for reaching out, for helping a woman in youth leadership, and later I had the same uh, experience. I had to be accountable, and we left with the new pastor calling members to tell them about our departure. Not sure how they handled it, but basically we are cut off from the friendships and families we've come to love and are hurting a lot. We are a homeschool family who moved here from the southwest Virginia area, and the church was our family. Do you have any book or sermons to recommend to us? Also, if you have any counseling to offer, we welcome it, especially because this involved our college-age daughter who loves the Lord, was mentoring young Sunday school uh, girls, serving as a youth leader assistant, musical vocalist, blah, blah, blah. And we've been blessed by Search the Scriptures since we have moved here seven years ago and have supported the interest of a church plant in the Hardyville, Port Wentworth, Pooler area. Thanks for being a light even more needed in this Christian community. Well, uh, I'm sorry for your hurt and what you've been through, and it's uh, tragic, and it's not unfortunately unique to you. It happens in America uh, every day. But let me just uh, share some overall perspective. I can't push you to a particular book. Most of the books that are written about bad experiences in churches are written by people who've renounced the faith and said, I was a member of such and such conservative Bible-believing church, and 
they did this to me and now I reject Jesus and so forth. The, the plethora of books go in that direction, but maybe just a few thoughts in terms of perspective. Um, number one, uh, remember that there are no perfect churches anywhere. Every church has problems. If you think just about some of the new Testament churches that, uh, God gave us letters from, uh, take the church at Galatia. They experienced the problem of legalism. False teachers had come in. They did not reject the gospel, but they rejected the implications of the gospel as it related to their unconditional acceptance in Christ. And so Paul wrote a letter to deal with the problem of legalism. Think about the Colossians. Uh, Paul has to deal with heresy that entered into the church and their willingness to stand strong, to put spiritual steel in their spine through his teaching and through the um, ministry of God's spirit. So they could reject that heresy and stand strong against it. Uh, Timothy, he had to deal with uh, in the second letter that Paul writes to him. Uh, there were issues about him even as a pastor. Oh, you're too young, Timothy. And Paul exhorts him, not, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. And there were tensions that uh, Timothy had to face. And so he addresses that. And he's such a godly man. Uh, think about Philippians. Philippians is a, a great place. It's a great church, a lot of healthy dimensions to it. But there was some selfish contention. And so a major theme that Paul underscores is dealing with Christ as our example, who did not look out merely for his own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And we're to have that attitude in us that he had. Uh, first and second Corinthians come to mind and you talk about problems. Uh, there was a host of problems that Paul had to deal with. You had church members suing each other. You had some church members who had compromised themselves morally others who were unwilling to stand up and exercise biblical church discipline. So there was all kinds of problems in that. And then of course, you know, in the seven churches, the revelation, and that might be a good study for you. Um, that comes to mind. I did seven, one hour plus sermons just on those seven churches as we've been working through the revelation, we've reached uh, the halfway point. So we'll start next in revelation 11, um, but we've done the first 10 chapters, but we spent seven Sundays just on the seven churches. And I think that would be a tremendous study for you in terms of understanding the nature of the church, problems in the church, how to uh, deal with those accordingly. Christ obviously loves his church. It's his bride and he loves us as imperfect people. And sometimes he calls us uh, to unjust suffering for you've been called for this example that Christ who was perfect, never had a bad word in his mouth, never did an evil deed, yet he suffered unjustly. So sometimes we need to put in perspective uh, how do we deal with unjust suffering, which sounds like what you're really dealing with. And so if you wanted to listen to a couple of specific sermons beyond the nature of the church, I might direct you to my series in first Peter. And you might especially want to listen to first uh, Peter two and chapters three. That would be very, very good. But don't let this uh, discourage you fight the good fight, stand strong. We're living in a day of gross compromise and you might in the interim until you can find a, another church in your area, 
uh, find the healthiest church. In fact, we had a family that came every week from this person is calling from Georgia and they drove about 60 miles because they were just hurting so bad and the church situation they were in. And they came to community Bible church for four months and they told me it's Sunday. It's the Lord's day. We're just going to make the commitment. They made kind of a family day out of it and had lunch and went to some of the local parks and had a great time. And it was some really a special time in their lives as a family. And they had a chance to heal and in the process uh, begin to evaluate God, where do you want us to go next? Because you don't want, you don't want to take some kind of retreat mode and say, well, we've got burned. And so we'll just have church at home. There's no such thing as home church where the husband is the pastor and the wife and the children are the congregants. And that's not a church by definition. It's not just some Christians getting together. There is a very specific definition of church in the New Testament. I have a whole course on ecclesiology, but I would suggest, especially since you have this college age daughter, uh, come to a healthy church. Maybe there's some others there in your area. If not, come to Buford for the next three or four months. Let God refresh you, build you, heal you, and then go on from there. So that's that's that would be my counsel to you this morning. I hope that helps. Very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Yeah, um, good morning. Pa- hey, Pastor. I have a question for you. Specifically, I'm going to reference... Uh, Nehemiah 1 7, but it's a very general question. Um, that is, what is the difference between commandments, statutes, and ordinances? And I know there's other places uh, in the Bible where laws are, are referenced and probably some other words too. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if you realize it, but I've taught the book of Nehemiah chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And I address some of these issues specifically. So this is a good time for a commercial. Uh, if uh, you're new to listening to the Bible line, uh, there is a ministry that I have online called search the scriptures and go. You, it's all one word, search the scriptures. Jesus said, search the scriptures because they speak of me. And if you go to search the scriptures.org, you can reference books that I've preached and I've gone through every single verse in the book of Nehemiah. And so that might be a very, very helpful commentary to you in terms of uh, your personal study and edification. Uh, I I think sometimes uh, the reason books of the Bible are difficult for people to understand is because they don't study an entire book. And yet when someone mails you a letter, you don't start on page three, paragraph four, sentence two, you start at the beginning and you work your way all the way through it. Uh, context is everything because sometimes, uh, the word statute can carry the identical meaning in Hebrew as commandment. Uh, so it context is everything because words sometimes can have a singular meaning. There are some words in English that mean always the same thing in every context, no matter what. There are other situations when the words can take on Uh, different nuances. If I speak of a trunk, do I refer to what's at the bottom of a tree, what's out in front of an elephant, what's over a sailor's shoulder, or what's behind a car? Well, the context will will tell you. But in this particular verse that you reference, you find all three mentioned. And so there are three distinctions. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, 
nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. So let's think first about the commandments. There are 613 in the Torah. The Torah comprised the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the, as, uh, as the Pentateuch. Penta, of course, meaning five, two cost laws. That's the Greek title for the Hebrew designation Torah. But the Torah is the law of Moses, the first five books. And so they had neglected the commandments of, of Moses. The statutes and the ordinances are two distinct things in this context. Ordinances refer to specific um, actions that they were to take apart from the commandments when a particular uh, issue uh, maybe of cleansing of purification uh, was involved and they were to follow those ordinances in those in a statute referred to largely the particular um, designated holidays that God had under the old covenant law. So that's how most would take these three words in this context, since they're all found together. So for instance, in the old Testament, there are seven statutes that God gave seven holidays. There were four that came in the fall and three that came in the spring. So you had, for instance, Passover, uh, that was followed by the uh, feast of unleavened bread, followed by uh, the Feast of First Fruits, followed by Sukkoth, or, or we call it Pentecost in Greek. So those were the four feasts that came in the spring. And of course, they typify the work of the Lord Jesus. Uh, they had um, uh, Jesus not by accident dies on Passover. He's, he's, his sinless body is placed in the grave, is pictured in the Feast of Unleavened Bread on Saturday, and he rises from the dead on Sunday, which is the first day of the Feast of First Fruits. And of course, that was uh, 49 days long. And on the 50th day, which was kind of the capstone day, Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes. So the first four feasts are literally fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. And then there were three spring feasts as well. And those all typify the second coming. But God really underscored the need for a, a pious Jew to follow the statutes. In fact, if you lived outside of Israel and you were not a member of uh, the uh, immediate Israeli community, you were still required as a pious Jew, even if you lived in a further part away from Israel, maybe you're in the Galilee region and you had to still come to at least three of the seven feasts, the statutes that God had ordained. And of course, the three that he chose are not by accident, Passover. So if you're there for Passover, you're going to automatically be there for the next couple. And then he required uh, uh, two additional, uh, one was Pentecost, which would you, you could go home and then come back 50 days later. Or, and then, and then you had one in the, in the fall that you had to attend. And so what it did is it kind of covered the bases where a pious Jew would come to these feasts and they were points of real reflection, points of um, uh, self-examination. And those Jews who were alert to what was actually happening, tens of thousands of them believed in Yeshua, Jesus as the Messiah, because they realized he fulfilled se several of these statutes. So 
anyway, but so that's not a wholesale defined definition because sometimes the, the Hebrew word, for instance, that's used for a statute can refer to a specific commandment. Uh, again, context is everything. It's like the word uh, in Greek porneia, fornication. Sometimes it can be used specifically to refer to premarital sex. Sometimes it can be used to refer to sex during the betrothal period, or sometimes it can be used in a very general way to refer to any kind of sexual immorality, even uh, postmarital uh, infidelity. So again, context is everything. Good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, we had a caller that dictated their question. Uh, it goes as follows. They would like to know what your advice would be for the following situation. A couple was living together and they both say they're Christians and then they broke up. Now they're wanting to date, not live together though. What would you tell them? Well, I would encourage you to be very, very cautious. And first and foremost, I would say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Now, I'm excited to hear that you want to make some things right spiritually and you had been involved physically. How long, you know, a single encounter, prolonged relationship sounds like the latter from what you're explaining. So as a pastor, I would encourage you to do some real soul searching to make sure that your election is sure. Uh, Peter talks about that in his second epistle. Make sure your election and calling is certain because there's a lot of people who think they are Christians and they really are not. They're convinced that if they were to die in the next 10 seconds, they would go to heaven. But shocker of shockers, when they meet the living God, they will find out they will not. They have what we would call a false assurance. And Jesus, of course, describes such people in Matthew chapter seven. I suspect that if we ask the people that he describes in Matthew seven, the diagnostic questions, they would have given textbook answers. But just because someone's theology is right, doesn't mean their heart is right with the Lord. And so Jesus describes not a few, but many people, many people, in that day who will claim allegiance to God's kingdom and they will even (laughs) reference certain, (coughs) excuse me, external activities that they've been engaged in. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, not I once knew you. It's not like you once had salvation, but I never knew you depart from me, you who practice iniquity. And I would underscore the word there practice much like Paul does in the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul tells the Galatian church to walk by the spirit that they might not carry out the desires of the sinful nature. Uh, You know, when you become a Christian, you have a new capacity to serve God that you did not have before you're born again. And because of this, there's a conflict that goes on in the heart of the Christian. He says for the flesh and the word flesh, here's another example of a word that can mean different things in different contexts. It can refer to the skin that covers your skeleton. It can refer to a worldly point of view, or it can refer to the sin nature within. And that's how he's using it in this context. In fact, some translations like the NIV, instead of just translating the word Sark, they interpret it for you. And they say for the sinful nature, it's a correct interpretation but it's not a translation at that point for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh 
for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So there's a conflict once you have a second birth that the, the believer knows uh, that is very, very different. And so he goes on to say, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Uh, here is what the flesh produces, immorality, impurity, sensuality. You, by your own um, dictation here this morning, basically have said that that was us. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. And the list goes on, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy and drunk drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is the word practice again that I want to underscore in your thinking. In other words, if this is someone's way of life, if this is someone's lifestyle, if this is someone's practice, then they really have proof positive that they've never met the living God. Can a Christian fall into these things? Absolutely. That's why the exhortation at the beginning of the paragraph is walk by the spirit that you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. When you become a born again Christian, your sin nature doesn't dissolve. Uh, You have the capacity to fall into anything. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. For no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But God is always faithful and he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape. And the way of escape for sexual sin is to flee immorality. You don't toy with it. You don't play with it. Uh, And so if you one are convinced you're Christians and that would be that that's where I would start with you. If you were in my office, I'd want to make sure you really knew the Lord Now, sometimes that's easy to discern because sometimes you can ask a person what they think the entry requirements are to get into heaven and they give a works righteousness. And obviously they don't know the Lord. They don't know how to be saved. So that's an easy one. It's a little more complex when someone knows the plan of salvation. They know the plan of salvation, but they don't necessarily know the man of salvation. The devil knows the plan of salvation and he's obviously not a Christian. So again, I can't judge a person's heart, but I can tell them what the new Testament says. Paul says, for instance, um, in first Corinthians six, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And there's a lot of people who are deceived. Now he's writing this to Christians And he's convinced that many of them know the Lord, but he also says in a second letter to them, test yourselves to see if you be in the faith. In other words, Paul had some doubts over some of the church members who attended the church there in the city of Corinth. And there are some people who are deceived. They point to some experience, some aisle, some baptism, some feeling, and they think, well, that must mean I'm saved. And they are deceived. Do not be deceived. And of course, that's the nature of deception. People who've been deceived don't know they've been deceived. Neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry is anything you make your God to be. Paul can say greed is idolatry. Uh, this word idolatry has direct application to people who worship objects. And they associate a God with that object. Uh, you go to India in the, you know, and every 50 feet, there's some idol. I mean, they're everywhere, just millions of them. They have over 300 million gods that they worship. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. It's moikeia, and it refers to extramarital sex, typically, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. He's talking about the male and female uh, partners in a homosexual slash lesbian relationship, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor, let me turn the page here, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's really, you know, hammering this home. Now, there's hope for anyone because the next verse says, such were some of you, uh, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now he's raising this because some of them had been involved in sexual immorality. And so he, he reminds them that for a Christian to join himself to someone that they are not married to is to bring God into an adulterous relationship. And so he will close off this section by saying, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price and therefore you're to glorify God in your body. Um, Likewise, when Paul writes the church at Ephesus, he reminds them very pointedly that there are some people who think they are Christians, but they really are not. And he wants them again, much like Peter will say to examine themselves to make sure that what they have is, is legitimate. And so he says uh, in Ephesians five, verse three, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks for this, you know, with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And there's a lot of empty words in our day where a lot of pastors say, well, I know you're sleeping with her and you're born again. You made your confession of faith and all is well. And let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Again, a Christian has the capacity to fall into any kind of sin, but we're talking here lifestyle. So first I would say, make sure you know the Lord. And I, I, I have a spark of hope here and that you're calling and saying, well, we don't want to live together. But then I would tell you, um, make sure all the precautionary measures are in place. Uh, look, when a young couple comes to me for marriage counseling, I say, look, if I'm going to marry you one, it's not going to be in less than six months. You're going to have six, one hour appointments with me. You're going to have about 20 hours of homework, uh, but also want to make sure that you're guarding yourself in the physical realm. And so I suggest to them the verse from first Thessalonians five, where it says, um, abstain from every appearance of evil. Some things are not necessarily evil, but they have the appearance of evil. And what you discover is that when you abstain from the appearance of evil, you're really guarding yourself from temptation. So I might say to him, uh, look, uh, your fiance here invites you over for a nice dinner in her apartment and it's just you and her. It has the appearance of evil. So you go over there and um, she invites you in the neighbor across the way. Oh, there's this, her fiance. Isn't he a nice young man? And you're in the apartment for three or four hours and you leave and, Hmm, I wonder what they were doing in there. 
and it potentially can soil your testimony, especially in this day where sexual immorality is so rampant and so widespread. So what you discover is that if you abstain from the appearance of evil, you will be guarding your heart from temptation. And here, since your relationship was built on the physical, you need to really begin to recalibrate it and build it on the spiritual. I'm not even saying that you should pursue this relationship with this person. Again, that's your own call, but that's why I started by saying, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Make the Lord number one above all else, because if you're not walking with the Lord, you're not going to have his direction. It's like the signal to this radio station, 88.7, we're broadcasting at 100,000 watts. Unless you're listening through the internet, the further you get away from the transmitter site that sends the signal up the antenna and into various uh, areas, the further you get away, the harder it is to hear and to make out the words that I am speaking today. Some of you are, um, you've been driving your car and my words are beginning to crack and and that's how it is in your relationship with the Lord. When you're close to, to him, then you're going to be able to hear from him. But the further away you get, then you can't really make out his will and you can make some decisions that can cost you for years to come. So put first Christ in your heart. Let him reign as Lord over you and all that you're doing. Well, that advice uh, dovetails nicely with our next question, which is in Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, How does this passage address once saved, always saved? This seems to be saying you can lose your salvation. Well, I remember when I took the um, book of Hebrews as a course in itself with one of my professors, Dwight Pentecost. And the first uh, assignment that we had that night is we were to go home and read the book of Hebrews in one sitting and make a list of all the passages in the book of Hebrews that affirm the eternal security of the believer, what you have dubbed once saved, always saved. And those verses, which apparently seem to think or teach that maybe we could lose our salvation. And so if you just want start there, and if you believe with, with all your heart, the premise that Jesus taught that the scripture cannot be broken that every jot and tittle is inspired by God right down to the tense of a verb as he gave uh, an explanation for his own deity based on the verb tense of a Hebrew sentence. If you believe the inspiration of the Bible, the way Jesus did, then you know, there are no contradictions and it's absolutely overwhelming. The verses in the book of Hebrews that affirm the eternal security of the believer. And so you have five, some would count six warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And when you look at those warning passages contextually, knowing that the writer is not contradicting himself, if he's affirming eternal security in one verse, he's not denying it in another verse. Not to mention there are over 150 places outside of the book of Hebrews that affirm our eternal security. For instance, when Jesus said, in John six, he that believes in me has eternal life. He doesn't use a future tense, but he uses a present tense. See, most people think of eternal life as something way out there that you get when you die. But Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. And so eternal life is not a place though. It encompasses a place because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the only thing that changes at death for the believer is the address. It moves from earth into heaven. 
He that believes has present tense right now, eternal life because eternal life is a relationship with the Lord and it's an unbroken relationship. How can you lose something that's eternal? That's a total oxymoron. It's impossible. So for instance, when I'm in Hebrews two and he says, uh, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I've heard preachers take this and hammer it home and warning people about, you know, the eternal wrath of God that's going to come. And, and that's all true, but it's not what this verse is saying. It does not say, how shall we escape if we reject so great a salvation? But how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So that's the first warning passage in the book of Hebrews. And in all the other warning passages follow that pattern, namely that, that if you neglect the great deliverance that God has given us in Christ, there are consequences. He'll say a little bit later in Hebrews three, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. By the way, that presupposes that you have a relationship with God's people in a local fellowship that you uh, don't do church at home, but you're engaged with the body of Christ so much so that you're able to encourage believers on a daily basis. That assumes you know God's people, you are engaged and involved with them. Then he goes on to say, um, again, uh, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's one of the functions of fellowship. And that's why he'll say later on in Hebrews chapter 10, that we're not to forsake our assembling together as is the habit of some, uh, but we're to encourage one another. And all the more as he, as you see the day, and it's a reference to the eschatological return of Christ, as you see the day of Christ approaching. Um, so as we move to the end of the age, especially uh, sin is not going to lessen. It's going to increase Men's hearts will grow cold and the society will become more and more and more corrupt. All the more reason we need each other. Then he goes on. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And he gives an example. And then he speaks about those who provoked him when they heard. Indeed, did not those who came out of Egypt led by Moses did not God become angry with them over the 40 years? And, and then he gives a second warning passage where God swore to them they would not enter his rest. God had made them a promise. They neglected the sure and certain word of God. And because of that, uh, they came to Kadesh Barnea. Moses sent 12 spies into the land not to see if they could take the land. It was already promised. But man played a responsibility in terms of conquering it. And so he sent 12 spies in to bring back the assessment of how they were going to take what God had already promised to them. And the majority report is there were giants there. You know, the people are a lot bigger than us. Their cities are well fortified. We don't stand a chance. And instead of listening to the word of God, which both Moses and Caleb, uh, that Moses and excuse me, Joshua and Caleb affirmed with Moses, uh, they listened to the majority report. And so God said, you're not going to go in. Well, the next day they're so sad, upset with themselves. And they come to Moses. We've sinned against you. We're sorry. We're, we're going to go in we're, we believe God now. He says, no, God told you you're not going in now. There's consequences for blowing God off. 
And it's a severe consequence in this particular situation, especially in light of all the revelation that God had expressed. Miracle after miracle, uh, showing himself great to his people. And so they try it anyway. And of course the consequences are grave. So that's the thrust of the warning passages. He's talking to believers. So remember there's a context to the warning passage in Hebrews chapter six. He begins in verse 11 of chapter five concerning him. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing concerning him who concerning him, Melchizedek, who is a model and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer saying, I'd like to tell you a whole lot more about Melchizedek, but I can't because you are dull of hearing for though by this time you in its plural ought to be teachers. You as a congregation should have grown enough not that everyone has the gift of teaching, not that everyone is called into the office of teaching for those who are called into that office will incur stricter judgment. But here's the responsibility of teaching that there ought to be growth in a person's life where they can answer basic questions because the great commission is not given just to, you know, 500 people on a hilltop in Galilee, but it's given to the whole church, every born again believer until the end of the age. And so by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So while they should have been progressing, they were backsliding and milk is used in two ways. Sometimes it's used of simple truth as in this context, or sometimes it's just used of the purity of God's word. And so in first Peter chapter two, we're told to long for the pure milk of the word. He's talking about the purity of God's word, not, not the simpleness of it in that context. Again, context is everything as the opening question uh, highlighted this morning. Uh, but the purity of God's word, you are to long for the pure milk of the word so that you can grow. Well, here he's using the term milk in terms of simple truth. He said, I'd like to teach you a lot more difficult complex spiritual truths as it relates to Melchizedek, but I can't because of some decisions you've made first. He says solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained. And the word trained is gymnastao. We get our word gymnasium from it. Um, they have trained, they've gymnasticized their senses to discern good and evil. Therefore leaving the elementary principles about the Messiah, let us press on to maturity. So he's not talking about salvation in the context. He's talking about maturity. And these people had backslid, so to speak. They should have been much further along. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you're still, you know, you just, you just need milk. So leave behind the elementary principles about the Messiah and press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead works of faith towards God of instruction about washing and laying on of hands. And so he's talking about these old Testament ordinances that were shadows of what God was going to complete and did complete in the Messiah. And so he'll go on. And, and by the way, I have a whole hour sermon on this. So to the caller, I'm just giving you the highlights here of a couple thoughts but really to study this in depth, it's actually a two one hour sermon. So you want to first listen to the sermon on 
Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. And then you want to listen to a second sermon in Hebrews 6. And I think I would have probably divided it at verse 8. Again, he's talking about pressing on to maturity. And those who have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. He's not talking about salvation. He is talking, though, about like the folks at Kadesh Barnea who wanted to repent. God says it's impossible. You had your chance. It's impossible. God is a God of second chance. But God is also a God to be feared and revered. And sometimes a person can make a decision in their life that it can't be undone. You know, you commit adultery with some woman and, and you leave your wife and your kids and you go marry someone else. You can't unscramble eggs at that point. And there are consequences that you have to live with. And that's what he's talking about here with some of these people. And he's talking about in the end rewards because he, he speaks about the ground that drinks the rain in verse seven, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it has been tilled receives a blessing from God. But instead it, it yields thorns and thistles. It's worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. He's talking about their service and the things that he will say in verse nine that accompany salvation. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the things verse nine that accompany salvation. And so God looks at our work and he doesn't forget our work. And someday at the judgment seat of Christ, Paul will say in first Corinthians three, our works are either gold, silver, precious stones, or they're wood, hay, and straw. And our works are going to be tested, the quality of our works with fire. And God will see what sort they are, what quality they are. And he'll reward us accordingly. So heaven's a gift. It's by grace. But our service, our works are evaluated not to see if we go to heaven, but how God rewards us in heaven. So that's the short answer. It would take me two hours to answer it full, but I've directed you, if you really have a heart to find out, to search the scriptures.org, uh, go to sources, resources, and go to books of the Bible, go to Hebrews, and you'll see there are two one-hour sermons that will give you the longer answer on this. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Manny from Providence, Rhode Island writes... My wife has filed for divorce and has left our home. I know God's will for my marriage is to avoid divorce. As I've drawn near to God, he's shown me that I loved her more than him. I want to honor God's will, but how do I balance giving God my heart and grieving my lost wife? Well, you know, again, definition is everything, isn't it? And so to say, well, I loved her more than I loved the Lord, I'm assuming by that, is you're saying you allowed her to sway you uh, maybe in the moral spiritual realm and you didn't take spiritual leadership because you wanted to do what she wanted you to do, but not necessarily what God wanted you to do. And if by that you mean you loved her more than God, then I can understand that. But on the other hand, you really can't love your wife too much. How do you, if you're in the will of God and that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And that's a daily sacrificial kind of love that we have to just choose to exercise on a daily basis. And it's not, well, I'm going to, you know, die for you. You might be called to die for your wife, but it's more like, you know, like last week it was pouring rain. I mean, it wasn't just born. It was just pouring rain where we were in um, 
it was not a fun place to go to the restaurant because it was about a mile away. So I walked about a mile to get the food that we needed and brought it back. And of course, it wasn't a dry bone on me. I didn't have an umbrella or anything. And uh, but that's sometimes the choices you make when you love your wife unconditionally. You love her as Christ loved the church. So I'm sorry for the heartache that you're in, my brother here from Providence, who's uh, emailed us. But let me just say it's not over unless someone remarries. And so don't give up. Don't give up. You can, uh, from this day forward, allow God to renew you in his grace. Let today be the first day of the rest of your life. You begin to obey God and walk with God. And God can certainly use that in the life of a disobedient wife or a rebellious wife, or, or maybe you're the rebellious person and God will show her that you've really changed and give her a sense of hope. Very often what happens in a marriage where people decide to get a divorce is they just say, well, you know, uh, there's no hope. Things can never get better. And they really then open themselves up to some infatuatory experience with a person that they're not married to. And they have these feelings that they think is love and feeling is love is more than a feeling. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. It's a decision that we make. And so then before you know it, there's a second marriage, but it's not over until someone remarries. Once remarriage has taken place, then reconciliation to your bride of your youth is then impossible. It, God, God says it's an abomination. If you divorce your wife and then you marry another and then you want to go back to your first wife, it's an abomination. God says you can't do it in the book of Deuteronomy. And some Pharisees questioned him on this very thing when he spoke on the subject of divorce. But as long as your wife is not remarried, there's still a possibility for reconciliation. That may not happen as soon as you would like it to, but as long as there's an open door there, then that's what you should pray for. And you do everything that you can to uh, be kind, uh, to walk with God, to obey the Lord and just see what he might do. I wish I could tell you there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people I've married back to each other, but there's been a handful. I wish there were many more. Very good. And I think you oftentimes use the expression, you can't unscramble eggs once you've gone ahead and married somebody else. That's right. All right. Well, Bonnie from Bluffton has a couple of questions. Uh, One, why did God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh in Exodus 3.18 to let his people go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to him? God's ultimate intention was to free Israel, not to have them return to Egypt. But the phrasing makes it sound as if the request is for the people to take a short journey, then return. Secondly, in Exodus 9, 3, God tells of the plague on the cattle in the field, on the horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, etc. Um, um, well, let's see. I'll, you know that passage. Anyway, the question is, um, uh, doesn't this imply multiple families of livestock in order to distinguish firstborn from others born later? I've pondered these questions for a number of years. Thank you in advance for your answer. Well, um, both are good questions, and from time to time, they'll come up on the Bible line. Uh, The first concerns the one in Exodus 3 that you uh, raise that, you know, God says, go to Pharaoh and ask for a three-day journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord. 
And some would say, well, you know, this is deception. Well, obviously, God is not the author of deception. So the liberal critics, you know, would say, well, he's obviously not. So this is just human error coming through the pages of Scripture. No, the the Scripture is perfect, and uh, this is an an or an ordinance, a commandment in this case that God is asking Pharaoh to respond to, and he's asking him specifically to respond to him. God, in doing that, is really letting. Uh, Pharaoh have an opportunity. Obviously God knows all things Uh, that's affirmed in the upper room there in Acts chapter one. He knows everything and he knows ultimately that this King would not grant his request. If God didn't know that God wouldn't be God. And yet God gives us freedom. He gives us a, a free will. The free will of man is real and had Pharaoh yielded his heart. Um, you know, it might've been that his heart would have been softened and spared from much of the turmoil to follow. God was going to deliver his people out of Egypt. He had already made that promise to Abraham 400 years earlier. He was going to release his people. Uh, but the heartache that Pharaoh had in his own life, even in losing his own firstborn son, and all of the turmoil that came on the land of Israel, much of that could have been avoided had this man simply honored this wish. And so this is really an offer of God's kesed, as we'd call it in Hebrew, his, his tender, loving mercy, his, uh, his incredible grace and mercy bled together there into that one word. It's often translated loving kindness in our English Bibles. And God was really showing his kesed to um, to Pharaoh through this request. But the Pharaoh, instead of listening, only hardened his heart. The second question is one that the liberals love to use. I call it livestock or dead stock. Uh, what, what's involved? And they say, well, there's obviously an error in the Bible because it speaks to the fact that God killed the cattle of the nation And then there appears to be some livestock that are alive for another plague. Well, there's a lot of reasonable solutions. Again, there are no contradictions in the Bible. And there's a lot of approaches that people have taken to it. When you read the list in Exodus 9, 3, it says, Behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. Obviously, not every domesticated animal is listed, for instance, one of the most common animals, even to this day, in this part of the word is, world is the goat. And goats aren't mentioned. So it's possible, one explanation is that the livestock um, accept goats. And so the goats are involved in a further plague. That's one explanation. It's, it's reasonable. I, I don't think that's the best answer, but I think it's a, it's a possible answer. Uh, I think another possibility is, again, we don't know the exact timing between the plagues, uh, whether it was a day in some cases or a week or a month. Um, Maybe God allowed some of these plagues to settle in. And the study of the plagues is an incredible Bible study in itself because the 10 plagues are reflective of various false gods that they worshiped there in Egypt. But one possibility is that after God had destroyed the Egyptian livestock, <coughs> excuse me, that they went into some of the surrounding area, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, 
and he purchased livestock from Libya or Ethiopia or Canaan, whatever, uh, that would require a few weeks to pull that off. But that's certainly one possibility and one option in terms of how to understand this scripture that it was fulfilled without in any way contradicting it. Some would say that all doesn't mean all. And that is true in some situations. Sometimes the word all based on its context, it means all manner of something, not every single one. And so some would say, well, all manner of livestock, all the different kinds is represented in the list that were given, were killed in the plague, but not every single one. But my, my whole point in this, and by the way, that's the approach that Coverdale took in his uh, English translation of the Bible. But my point in saying this is that there are reasonable explanations as to what could have happened that in no way contradict the inspired inerrant word of God. But the critics are always looking for something in which to plow down that the Bible as being true. Okay, we've got a little less than three minutes. I think you can get this one out. Uh, what is your position on intercessory healing prayer? That's from Patty in Pauly's Island. Well, uh, again, definition is everything. What do you mean by that? Um, very often when people use those terms, uh, it's in reference to some of our charismatic brethren that uh, have healing services and prayer services, and they use some verses out of context. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church that are pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. And so some will use this verse and say, well, we need to have services at our church. And look, if people are sick, who doesn't want to be healed? We all want to be healed. None of us want to have some kind of prolonged sickness. Uh, We all relish health. But with that said, I don't think that James 5 is referring to that. Contextually, he's referring to, I think, people who are under the discipline of the church because of sin that they have committed. And so they are to seek the elders, not the faith healer, but the elders, plural of the church, singular. There is an implication here in this verse that there's more than one elder in the New Testament. And of course, sometimes sickness was an expression of God's discipline. Like in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have even died because you are unrepentant. And so I think he's dealing here with someone who has been unrepentant and they recognize that the source of the physical uh, displeasure that they are knowing in their body is a result of God's sovereign discipline over their lives. There's all kinds of reasons given for sickness in the Bible. But one reason is sometimes the sovereign discipline of the Lord. And in that situation, the person is to seek the elders of the church and assuming the elders have assessed that their repentance is genuine, then they can pray in faith and expect God to reverse the problem. Well, we're out of time, but we're so glad that you were able to join us today for the Bible line. Lord willing, we'll be back here next Tuesday at 11 o'clock. These uh, broadcasts are posted at searchthescriptures.org and at wagp.net. Hope you have a good day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.